And then if you guys are willing, uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2, so if you want to track down a Bible and get with me there, we're in Acts chapter 2, and the Bibles that we have here on site, you're going to find that on page 936, 936. We're in Acts chapter 2, uh, we'll actually be on page 937, because we're doing verses 42 to 47. So I'm going to read this paragraph, and then I'll pray, and we'll get to work. Uh, this is describing the early church. These are followers of Christ in the aftermath of his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. He, God pours out his spirit on the people, and they experience a profound new way of life. And so we're seeing that here in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. Let me read, and then we'll pray, and we'll get after it. Reads like this, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Let's pray. Lord, as we've opened your word together this morning, we're praying that by your spirit, through your word, you would shape us into the people that you want us to be. Help us to be a congregation that reflects the glory of what you're trying to do here. Lord, we pray that we would gladly embrace the agenda that you have, and we pray, Lord, for your help. Please pour out your spirit so that we could be effective in this, and we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. We're, we're looking at different aspects of our church. We've been doing this for weeks now. We're doing a series now to help us understand who are we as Park City Church? What's the unique calling that we have to be God's people in this place and in this time? And we've been looking at different elements of the things that we do when we gather. So we've looked at worship, and we've looked at preaching, and we've looked at various things like that. Well, now we're beginning to turn our attention to what does it look like when we scatter? What does it look like when we depart from here? And how can we maintain that same calling that God has on us, but how do we do that when we're away? And so we look at some different things. Today we'll talk about groups and discipleship, and then next week we'll talk about uh, what it looks like to live life on mission, Lord willing. But we're looking at these different elements, and we're going to Acts chapter 2 today to see a depiction of life as the followers of Christ. And what I want to point out here, I'm going to uh, spend a moment just answering this question, what does this paragraph describe? And uh, really, um, it's an incredible paragraph, and we're going to look at some of the details, and I'm going to tell you that these are, these are priorities that we put in our groups and discipleship process. But before we go there to the particulars, I really want to make sure we understand the big picture. What, what is this describing? And um, the simple answer, as I think about it, is this is describing what it looks like when a group of people are experiencing maturity in Christ. This is a group of people that are so committed to the things of God that it is, it is profoundly shaping their daily activities. These are people who have come under the, the rulership of their king, and it is now manifesting itself in all the choices that, that they're making. This is maturity in Christ. 
And this actually is the goal of the church. When we think about ministry and we think about what are we trying to do here, what are we trying to accomplish here, the goal of ministry is helping people become mature in Christ. The Apostle Paul puts it like this. He describes it in Colossians. And this really is just a sidebar and a bigger argument that he's making. But he describes ministry and he puts it like this. Christ is the one we proclaim. Admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we might present everyone fully mature in Christ. He's talking about ministry and he's saying, here's what we're doing. We're proclaiming him. We're admonishing, meaning we're not just giving information, but we're actually trying to persuade people to respond appropriately. We're admonishing and we're teaching everyone with all wisdom, here's the purpose clause, so that we might present everyone fully mature in Christ. This is the end game. This is what we're after. If you think about what are we doing as a church, this is it. Uh, We're not just trying to hold services. We're not just trying to create Christian programs. This is the end game. It is how do we help people become mature in Christ. And then he tells us it's work, verse 29 of Colossians chapter 1. He says, to this end, to this goal, to this uh, aim of his, of creating a mature people in Christ, to this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. It's a work, teaching, admonishing, proclaiming Christ, so that people might become mature in him. And this is work. He's saying, I strenuously go about this with all the energy that God gives me. So that's what we're up to today. We are trying to get people to grow in their maturity of Christ. And what we find in Acts chapter 2 is what it looks like when that happens. And uh, what I would say is, it's showing up in real time. So how will I know when, when we as a church are getting somewhere close to this? It won't be Sunday morning. I, I, can, I could be like, you know what? They're singing pretty loud today. But that won't be evidence of maturity. The evidence of maturity will be when we have some conversations and you start to reveal how your commitment to Christ is showing up in your real life, in the relationships that you have, the way that you spend your time, the things that you are devoted to, when you are becoming mature in Christ, it will show up in your life. And that's what we're trying to do here. So how do we reverse engineer this? So looking at this paragraph, recognizing this is what it could be, what are some of the things that we could do as a church to get somewhere near this? And I'm going to give one qualification before I do give you those three different uh, values. The one qualification that I have for this is, this is a work of God. I'm going to try to be very practical. I'm going to try to show you how our groups and discipleship process uh, embodies some of these priorities, but but I'm willing to remind all of us, myself especially, this is a work of God. In order for this to come true, God will need to to do something in us. Uh, This happens in the wake of God fulfilling his promises that he's been making all the way back in the book of Joel, where he said, I will pour my spirit out on my people. Well, that's Acts chapter 2, if you just glance up at the early, earlier portion of this, that's what's going on. God pours out his spirit on his people, and a profound thing happens to them. And now we get this. So the plans that we have, the strategy that we embrace, are dead in the water unless God breathes his life into it. And that's what we're attempting to do here. So here are the three things that I want you to recognize when we think about how, how could we become a mature people, 
here are three things that show up in the text that I think are significant. And what we've done is we've cut and pasted these things into our plan. So the first one is discipleship. And that's a somewhat technical term. What I mean by it is apprenticeship to the way of Christ. When we talk about discipleship, we're, we're recognizing that there is a process where people follow the Lord and they grow in their ability to discern what the Lord wants and then to live that out. So what did Jesus do? He called people to himself. He called disciples. And then he spent years training them. And his curriculum was him. And his classroom was real life. And so he takes a people and he's discipling them along the way. Now the church is supposed to do this. This is Matthew chapter 28. Jesus told us, here's what you do, make disciples. So we have an obligation to disciple people. And we're talking about the process of people being apprenticed to the way of Christ. And you see some elements of that showing up here in Acts chapter 2. It shows up in the different things that this group is committed to. Verse 42, they were devoted to teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So they were listening to the teachings from the scripture about Christ and how he is fulfilling the promises of God, and they dedicated their lives to that. We've done a sermon series before on this one paragraph, and we broke it up into four different sermons, and and the sermon on this point was called, We Want to Be a Learning Church. We want to be devoted to the teaching of Christ. We want to commit ourselves to learning his will and his ways. And I'm not simply talking about information. Information will not get this done. We're not talking about cramming people's heads full of all kinds of Bible facts. We're talking about the transformation that occurs when we hear the teaching of Christ and we apply it. And we begin to think through, what would this look like in real life? What would this look like for me to live this thing out in real time? James warned us, he said, don't merely hear the word and deceive yourself. Do what it says. So the main thing that we're talking about when we devote ourselves to teaching is application. We don't want to come to church and then leave it behind. In fact, one of the strategies that we have for our groups, we encourage our leaders of ongoing groups to take the Sunday morning sermon, and then when you get together, work on figuring out how does this apply. Because here's the normal thing. We come to church, we're listening, we're singing, and then we go to lunch. And then we, you know, somebody asks, how was church? Oh, it was, it was great. Yeah, what'd you guys talk about? Uh, what did we talk? I don't, even, I don't remember. And we just leave it behind and, and we go, that was fine. Like, I liked it. It was, you know, whatever the, I, I liked the songs this week or I didn't, or I liked the sermon or I didn't. And then we just leave it in the dust. But, but what if we actually doubled down on this and we said, you know what? Let's really work at allowing the Holy Spirit to show us how does, this, how does this apply? How does this show up in my real life? Because we want to live this stuff out. We want to apply it. So the discipleship involves a commitment to the teaching and a commitment specifically to applying what is being taught. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to fellowship and to the breaking of bread. That's verse 42 as it goes on. It says they were devoted to relationships with each other. Their commitments revealed that they prioritized life in community. And this one is a tough one because in our society, we are very private, we're individuals. We even treat our spirituality as an individual thing. So we go, okay, this is 
This is where I do my God thing, me and God. But in the early church and in, under this uh, priority of discipleship, it will show up in our devotion to relationships with other believers, our willingness to order life so that we are together. They devoted themselves to fellowship and to the breaking of bread. So this means that if we're going to follow the Lord and become mature in Christ, it will have an influence on our calendar. It will show up in our weekly schedule. It will show up in the way in which we design our lives to be with one another in Christian community. They were devoted to fellowship. It goes on to say that they were devoted to prayer. They devoted themselves to prayer. So they were committing themselves to communicating with God. It wasn't just that they got their marching orders and then they were carrying on and they didn't think much about it from that point forward. No, they were devoted to communicating with God, praying, God, what does it look like today to walk faithfully with you? What does it look like to live my life under your rule and your reign? And they committed themselves to this ongoing experience of prayer. They devoted themselves to teaching, to fellowship, to prayer, and then they experienced God. Look at verse 43. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. So they were experiencing what it looks like to be aware of the reality of God. So discipleship is the first priority that we notice here in the text, and it shows up in our commitment to doing things that help us grow spiritually. And as a church, we, we highlight this and we say, we want people to be embracing these different spiritual rhythms and practices so that we are growing in our likeness to Christ. And we want these things to become obvious in the way in which we live. So we're not just measuring what we do on Sunday mornings, we're, we're measuring how are we living? Are we committing ourselves to the realities of Christ? Is our devotion showing up in these different ways? Well, the second thing, the second priority that we find here, I've labeled it care. It's, a, it's just a simple way to remember this thing. But, but one of the things that I think shows up here in this paragraph and is very, very important is that believers learn to look after each other. They're caring for one another. In fact, in the New Testament, there are 59 different times where we are told to do something and then with the phrase, this, this is the phrase that shows up 59 times, with one another. One another shows up in 59 different times in the New Testament. So there's an obvious emphasis on Christian community and relationships. And what we find here is this, this important thing, that we need to learn how to care for each other. Um, I was talking to somebody this week, and we have to move in this direction as a church because we continue to grow and new people continue to show up and we're well beyond my ability to offer direct care to people who are a part of Park City Church. I, I, I want to. In fact, unhealthily, I try to. I, I want to be involved. I want to be invested. I want to be aware. I want to be able to help in any way that I can, but we're beyond the scope of my ability to offer direct care to everybody. And so what we need is to embrace what the New Testament tells us to do of the the congregation caring for each other. And in many ways, that is what, what is happening around here. But we need to embrace this as a strategy that we would look after each other and care for one another and love and serve one another. Look at verse 44. All the believers were together and had everything in common. In the early church, they actually liked each other. 
They were together, and they had everything in common. And I think this is getting at that concept that the New Testament calls unity in Christ. I think that's what it means when it says they had everything in common. They weren't all the same. They weren't all identical in the way that they would think politically or the things that they would prioritize at a personal level, but here's what was going on. As a church, in Christ, they were together, and they had everything in common. And so this idea of care is showing up because they actually have real relationships within the body of Christ. That shows up in the way that they look after each other. Look at verse 45. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. They were sharing material resources. They they recognized, well, I've got a lot, and you have a need. How can I take my plenty and supply for your want? How can I use what I have as a blessing, as an instrument, in the kingdom of God. They were caring for each other in real and tangible ways. They were sharing their time. Look at verse 46. Every day they continued to meet together in temple court, in the temple courts. They had this habit of, of finding opportunities to connect. And it was going on, and it describes it here as every day they're meeting together. This is wild. This is this is incredible. This is exceptional, even. But this is something that we need to embrace. How can we as a Christian community, create time for each other. They were sharing their time, but they were also sharing their table. Look at verse 46. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They were together in the home, at the table, sharing meals. They were caring for each other. So if we're going to embrace this as an ideal, we as a church have to figure out How can we design experiences where we actually spend time with each other? And um, there was was an individual that I met uh, from a church network that that influenced me profoundly, and he was describing his small group experience. And I just had him play, play out, like, what's a week like for you? And he described all these little moments throughout the course of the week that he had a touch point with his small group. So they had a meeting time where they would apply what the, the sermon from that week, and then they had a standing reservation, and they had a pretty good-sized group, and so people may or may not show up to that, but they had a standing reservation, and people would get babysitters for that night, and then they'd hang out, and then they'd sit together at church. They had like their own little area, and they're like, well, we're, we're a community, and so we're together, and they're worshiping together, and they would serve together, and there were all these little touch points, and then they had, you know, a group text thread that was going on, and all these touch points, and and it just, it wasn't complicated. It was just intentional. It it wasn't complicated. It wasn't like, yeah, you got to give up your entire life to be a part of this thing. It was just, no, let's figure out how to organically connect with each other consistently so that we can care for each other. We know what's going on. We're praying for each other. We're looking after one another in all these different ways. We want to be a community that cares well for one another. The third thing that we see here is, is the idea of mission. Mission, meaning God is at work in the world, making Christ known. And the early church embraced this, and they got to experience it in a profound way. They experienced God adding to their number daily those who are being saved. But I want to show you that even within this paragraph, they're doing certain things that contributed to that, that God is at work in their midst in a, in a way that allows for these things to come true. So, notice that there is a mission of praise in verses 46 and 47. They're sharing meals together with glad and sincere hearts. Verse 47, praising God. 
And you might go, Core, that doesn't have anything to do with mission. And I would say, no, it has everything to do with mission. If they're praising God, that means that they are communicating what it is that they truly value. When somebody interacts with us, they're noticing our worship patterns. We're all worshipers. We're we're constant worshipers. Um, There's a book by Harold Best called Unceasing Worshipers. And he says, human beings, that's what we are. We are unceasing worshipers. It's not a matter of if we worship. It's a matter of what do we worship. So if we're praising God, then the thing that we're communicating is that's valuable. That's significant. That's important. And when people see us praising God, that commends God to them. But maybe they come into contact with us and they go, okay, they see what we really praise and value. They go, man, that dude, he likes wakeboarding or he likes skateboarding or snowboarding or whatever. They come into contact with Corey and they see me praising something else. And they walk away going, I'd like to go wakeboarding with him. That sounds fun. I have evangelized them toward a sport. But what if our life was so devoted to the things of God that wakeboarding was actually a worship experience? And anyone who does that with me comes to see, I value God way more than anything else in my life. So what we praise is actually, how we praise is actually a way in which we communicate the value of God. And so as we think through this, if somebody were to sit with you throughout the course of your week, what would they come away thinking this person values? If you are mature in Christ, that should be an obvious one. What are you spending your time on? What are you spending your energy on? What are you talking about? How we praise is a part of the mission. Peter says so in his letter. He says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Now that's breathtaking. God is just saying, here's who you are. Here's your identity as a redeemed individual. You're God's special possession. That's wild. He looks at us and he goes, you're mine. Out of everything I've made, you're, you're my special thing. But then we get a purpose clause here, and it says, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You are redeemed people for the sake of praising the one who, who is your redeemer. And when we do that, people come to see the beauty and the value of who God is and what he's done. There's also a mission here of favor. Look at verse 47. They were praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. This is an interesting one. What it's saying is that this community actually conducted life in such a manner that other people who were looking at them saw them with favor. Uh, In public speaking, we call this ethos. Like it's the vibe that you get from somebody. So if I stand up here and I rub you wrong and the the vibe that I have is off-putting to you in some way, it doesn't matter if the sermon is great. It doesn't matter if everything I'm saying is true. If you see me as somebody who's sketchy or not very trustworthy or, you know, something about my demeanor rubs you wrong, you won't hear it. You won't receive it. But if somebody stands up here and you're like, I kind of, I don't know what's going on here, but this person gives off a vibe that I trust, that I like, that I favor, what they say, even if they're not doing a good job, you go, I want to listen to this. It's interesting that this is actually a requirement for spiritual leadership, that we need to be in, in, let's say, uh, 1 Timothy 3 and other places, we talk about leaders as those who have to have a reputation in the community. It's important that we would conduct ourselves in a way that actually is favorable. 
so that people see us and they go, I value them. I don't agree with them. I don't believe the same way that they believe, but I value what they have to say. And there's a ministry here of favor, a mission of favor. They were enjoying the favor of all the people. And that means that there is a greater likelihood that people are going to hear the news of Jesus Christ from them and receive it gladly. And so we need to recognize, are we becoming the kind of people that people want to be around? When you show up for work, are your coworkers retreating from you, trying to hide, or thinking, oh, great, I don't want to deal with this person, or are they drawn to you? And if they're drawn to you, then you have favor and you can commend your Savior to them in different ways. All right, notice verse 47, the outcome. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The church was growing because the Lord was doing a profound work in their midst, and the mission was advancing, and they then were on the front row experiencing what it looks like to watch people come to saving faith in Christ. So as a group, as a church with small groups, are we thinking through how can we create environments where the mission of God advances through us? Are we willing to create a space for other people to come in and hear the news of Christ? When we do our groups, we need to think through the difference between being a monastery and being a missionary team. A monastery says, let's, get, let's retreat and we'll hang out with the people that we like and keep the world at a safe distance versus a missionary team that says, okay, we're together for the sake of the people who are around us. And how can we invite people into this and share with them? And how can we go out in the name of Christ for his sake? How can we be involved in this incredible mission of God in this world? And how can my community be an integral part of that? That's what we're talking about here. So those three things, discipleship, growing in Christ-likeness, care, learning to love one another in the body of Christ, and mission, learning how to do life on mission with Christ. Those are the three things that we value around here. And so what I'm going to do for the remainder of my time up here is I'm going to talk to you about some of the different things that we purposefully do in our groups and discipleship strategy. And um, it's interesting. I pulled, I pulled this out. Um, this was something that I wrote. It says April 6, 2017. This was a, a few weeks after we held our very first services together as a congregation when we were launching as a satellite uh, campus. And we started to think through, how do we, how do we experience this kind of stuff? How, how would God have us pursue spiritual maturity in Christ, and what would that look like? And I felt like the groups and discipleship piece was a key piece to that. And we had all these different group leaders and all these different ideas and everything was kind of just bouncing around. And we sat down, we actually had a meeting at the tree farm and I, and I um, showed everyone this. And it's a manual for discipleship and groups. And it's interesting, this is seven years ago now. It's the same. Same three things, discipleship, care, and mission. It's the same thing that I've been saying the whole time. Uh, it's not new stuff is, is kind of what I'm getting at. This idea is, is significant to me. It feels so, so important. And it feels like if we could embrace this, then we could move in that direction in a profound way. I'll also say this. It's seven years later, and I'm still working pretty hard to get this one on board. 
It's one of the harder initiatives that I've tried to lead, lead our people into. But let me just spend a moment talking about uh, how, how to go about this, and then I want to show you a video. So obviously, maturity in Christ matters. Creating a people who are spiritually mature matters significantly. Otherwise, what are we even doing? Right? I don't just want to have services. I don't just want to lead a Christian organization. I want to see a group of people become like Christ, become mature in him. So how do we do that? And I'm going to give you a framework um, for a lot of the different initiatives that we do. It applies to groups and discipleship. It applies to a lot of other things as well. When we think about how to, how to do this, three things, okay? We need conviction, we need constructs, and we need culture. Conviction are the beliefs that we share. What does the Bible say about this? Why do we do it this way? Do we agree? Are we convinced? convinced and convicted that this is how we want to operate as a church. That's a part of why we're doing this series, trying to come up with shared language of this is what we believe is significant. So conviction is an important part. The second one is constructs, meaning what are the different strategies that we embrace? What are the different methods that we have? What are the different things that we routinely do to try to get this done? We want to build out expectations and plans so that we can move together toward that. That's a significant thing in in any endeavor that we do, having clear constructs. And then the third one is culture. And uh, one of the business gurus, he said it like this. I can't remember which one, but he said, culture eats, eats strategy for breakfast. Meaning when you get there, most of your work is done because it's just going to carry on. If it becomes a normal thing in the life of an organization, then it becomes a powerful thing. But in order to get to the culture, we have to do the conviction and the constructs first. We have to convince one another of its significance. We have to design a pattern to try to get there. And we have to believe that one day we will make that so normal that you come into Park City and it's the expectation. It's the norm. So our groups and discipleship strategy is a key part of that. Because we value spiritual maturity, we're saying that this is not incidental, this is critical. We have a clear process for helping people grow spiritually in Christ, and we believe that that's a significant effort and worthy of our best efforts and intentions. So let me pray, and then I'd like to show you a video. Let's pray. Lord, we're asking that you would help us to become spiritually mature. I pray, Lord, that you would allow our lives to become evidence of our commitment to Christ. Let us reveal that commitment in the things that we're devoted to. And I pray, Lord, for our church. I pray that we could become a community that actually embodies these ideals. So, Lord, would you please help us for your sake, for your glory, for our benefit. We pray in your name. Amen.